Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, today is Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021, and we're back with another episode of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general amazing awesomeness of some really cool, really amazing plant people. I'm Vikram Baliga, and I'm your host and humble guide through this journey, through science and plants and ecology and whatever else we can think of to talk about fish. We could talk about fish. We might even talk about fish today. It's really hard to say. Who knows? Uh, So I'm getting back into interviews. Isn't that great? You know, during July, I was a little bit snowed under. Or actually, during the end of the semester, I was a little bit snowed under and didn't really have time to record a whole lot of interviews. And so I ended up doing some solo content, some plant tips, and some other things that I hope you enjoyed. It Looking at the download numbers, it seems like you did, and I've gotten some good comments about those. So uh, you will probably very likely see more of that kind of content going forward just from time to time whenever I feel like doing a cool solo episode or there's something pressing I need to talk about uh, I will probably do more of that so today's interview is one that I've been trying to do for a while I first contacted this person uh, like months ago months ago back in I think April or or May or something like that and then the end of the semester hit and my life went bananas and bonkers. And so um, it didn't happen and it just kept not happening. And finally, at the beginning of July, I got to talk to my friend, uh, Dagmar Duravedevan. And um, she is a science communicator. She is a PhD student researching archer fish. And I know what you're thinking. Fish, fish, my friend, fish, this is a plant podcast. It turns out that uh, Doug Marr's master's degree is actually in seed dispersal in plants, which is really something that I think is very fascinating. So I was thrilled when she reached out, you know, again months ago saying, hey, I know something about plants. I would love to talk to you. And I'm I'm very glad and very excited that she did. So um, I don't have too much else to talk about. Actually, there's actually going to be a mid-roll uh, today. This was one of probably the more chaotic recordings I've done in a while. It was the first one I'd done in a long time, and there kept being interruptions. So you'll get to hear some elevator music today. We haven't done that in a while. It'll be fun. But um, without belaboring the point more, you're going to love this episode. Dugmar is just just fabulous. She's fabulous, and, and you're, you're going to love her. She's great. Um, but... Go ahead, and if while you're doing this, pull up your phone machine or your computer machine and go subscribe to Planthropology wherever you're listening. If you haven't done that already, go to somewhere and leave a review and follow on social media in all the places. That's all I got. So get ready to hear a great one about science communication, archer fish, seed dispersal, and just pursuing your passions and your interests. So it's time for episode 54 of Planthropology with my friend, Dagmar Der Vedevin. All right. Well, we're back with another episode. I'm going to start that over. Oh, <laughs> uh, be a it feels long like day. a Monday. Oh, oh God, yeah, it's morning for you. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's 930 here, and uh, I'm about halfway through my coffee. All right. Well, we're back with another episode of Planthropology, and uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, it's one that we've been talking about trying to do for a while, and you know, life is what it is, and it gets busy. But mostly on my end, I get I get busy and I get distracted. But uh, uh, my guest today has really just such a wide. Uh, breadth of experience in the sciences, and I'm so excited to hear from her. Uh, so, I'm here today with Dugmar Dervedevin, all the way from Scotland. Uh, I'm so excited to have you with me today. We've been friends on Twitter for a while, and uh, uh, how are you today? Hi, yeah, um, I'm good. Thanks so much for for having me on. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, and and 
again, we first, I think, tried to record this back in, or we started talking about this back in like April. Yeah. And then I, I dropped off the face of the earth for about a month at the end of the semester. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, it happens. So how's your uh, summer going so far? Yeah, it's good. Um, we're finally getting some some nice weather in Scotland again. Um, it's been a lot of rain. It's nice. Lots of plants around because there's been a lot of rain, but um, I can't go outside to enjoy them. Uh, I mean, that's good. I, you know, I, I live in a very dry, hot, sometimes, you know, I'm not going to say terrible. I like it here, but a very dry and hot part of the the world. And so when I when I hear of people that like get rain regularly, I'm always a little bit jealous. It can be nice. Like, you know, it's soothing if you're inside and you don't need to go out, but um, it can get a bit depressing too. And I have to go outside like every day to go to the lab. So then <laughs> it's nicer if it's not raining. Well, I yeah, okay, I can see that. Uh, I, this is okay, so we'll stop talking about the weather soon. But I have to know because I I think about this a lot. So I've started recording more with international uh, guests. You know, at first it was a lot of people that you know were at my university, and then it kind of branched out. Um, when we talk about summer temperatures, I feel like I have really poor context for what the rest of the world is like because it is. You know, uh, let's see. Today it's actually we've had a nice summer, but normally in July we're like. 45 celsius or hotter what what's it like there where you are i just want to live vicariously through you uh like 15 degrees in the summer between 15 and 20 um yeah it gets to like if it's like 10 degrees celsius here and it's sunny um it's what the scots call tops off weather so everyone just walks around shirtless um and i'm dutch so that's not really weird to me because you know we're almost (laughs) on the same latitude Sure. Uh, 45 degrees, I think would kill me. It's, it's something else. It's uh you kind of, I, I used to run a, uh, run a landscaping company in a, in a former life. And, uh, we had a summer where it was about 45 every day for three weeks in a row or something like that. And, and at that point I was just like, I have to do something else. I can't, Yes, it's, it's too much. Anyway, I can understand is, that. Yes. Um, neither here nor there it has nothing to do with anything. I'm just, I'm always curious because like we just sit here and melt and then I'm, you know, there's, it, I don't know. Anyway. I mean, it's uh, like 17 so. degrees here today and I was melting. So. <laughs> oh, that's, that sounds lovely. Like really lovely. Um, well, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, I, I have enjoyed, you know, through some of these recent episodes, getting more uh, international perspective on academia and science and just, just life in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about, you know, where you're from, what got you into what you do and all that. Yeah. Um, so I'm originally from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, I was born there and lived there until I was 10. Um, and then my family moved abroad because my dad worked for the UN. So we spent a year in Israel slash Palestine Um both of those uh, mm-hmm. different parts of the border, um, and then we moved when I was uh, when I was eleven. We moved to Kenya for four years and lived in Nairobi, uh, which was amazing. I mean, when I lived there, I was more used to hot weather because it's you know on the equator and stuff. Um, and it was yeah, it was really cool, and it just kind of like gave me this whole new perspective on like all the things that are out there in the world. Both mm-hmm. like the natural world, but also like cultures. Um, and I'd always been quite drawn to like animals. And I think when I was like five or six, I told my older brother I wanted to be an Arctic biologist when I grew up. Uh, that's a bit that too cool fun. for me. It sounds fun. <laughs> um, he made a lot of jokes about like seal trapping, um, which is less fun and not really biology, but you know, <laughs> brothers. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, we moved to Kenya and there was just so many, you know, such a different ecosystem, such a different environment and such a different way that people interact with the world around them. Um, Because, you know, a lot more people are much more connected to nature than they were in the Netherlands. Um, Netherlands is tiny. It's very crowded. You know, we'd go to the, the woods or to the beach, but it's not like you don't live in the woods or, you know, by the sea or something right. in that way that's people in other countries still have that connection with with nature um so i I kind of rediscovered that or discovered it when we lived there um um which was absolutely incredible and then uh when i was 15 we moved to new york city which is the exact opposite 
Um, um, so that was uh, an an interesting experience. It's not for me, such a big, a big city. It's like New York city's got like half the population of the Netherlands lives in that that city. And it's, it's too much. Um, but I loved going to, uh, to central park, spent a lot of time there, um, you know, looking for cool creatures and plants and things. Um, and, kind of started to you know i was getting in high school trying to figure out what i wanted to do later and i started working at a wildlife rehabilitation center called the wild bird fund they were at the time and possibly still the only wildlife rehabilitation center in the city uh so it's a lot of pigeons mostly pigeons but you know sometimes they'd get in swans or uh i think they had a few opossums we'd get baby squirrel season like twice a year and they're just the vets would walk around with like baby squirrels just clinging onto their scrubs um and it was just absolutely amazing and made me decide i wanted to be a vet you know my like career path a bit so yeah probably sitting there like you're not a vet what are you talking about um but yeah, I, no, I really enjoyed that. And it was going to be either vet school or a biology degree. So it could stay involved okay. with, you know, working with, with animals. Uh, I applied to vet school in the UK. I didn't want to go to university in the US. Um, mm-hmm. No offense, but I no, don't like the taken. system there. So <laughs> Yeah, none taken. <laughs> okay. You're right. You're not wrong. Uh, and well, I didn't get accepted into vet school. So I ended up sticking with the biology degree, um, going to the University of Edinburgh. And realized there that I probably would have gotten really bored if I'd become a vet because it's very mm. repetitive. I did a, a month-long internship with a vet in the Netherlands when I was 17, and it was cool for a month. But after that, it was it was getting really boring. It was just, you know, people with the same animals bringing in the exact same problems. And I like sure. a bit more variety. Um, so Edinburgh turned out to be the perfect... Uh, choice because I managed to get involved with a bunch of research projects, um, studying uh, human behavior uh, within the biology department. So, you know, the focus on like the evolution of human behavior and how it's similar to how animals behave rather than psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, And the study that ended up being my dissertation project for my undergrad, um, traveling basically across like a 250 mile transect in Scotland in the summer, uh, looking for blue tits in these specific um, sites, and you know, recording like everything we could about these 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 birds, um, and I end up collecting all of their nests and doing some experiments with those. Um, wow! So yeah, it's never really been like close to plants for me, but then I started working with these nests and seeing how these animals use plants, and that really made me decide, okay, I need to become an ecologist because that would allow me to investigate how all these things, you know, relate to each other, how to interact with each other. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that, that research. But when I was done, I wasn't sure if I just wanted to focus on animals. So I decided to study plants for my master's, um, which was an accident. I heard about this research (laughs) master's program, uh, the university of St. Andrews, um, and I looked at like the list of projects that were available, and this one supervisor was offering a project on uh, predator-prey interactions and like mimicry things like that. It sounded really cool. I kind of wanted to do that. Yeah. I emailed him, and he emailed me back and said, "Well, we couldn't do that, but here's like 19 other ideas for master's projects that you could also do." And the one on um, winged seed dispersal just kind of caught my eye because I never thought about that did a bit of research and realized there's a lot that people don't pay attention to when it comes to winged seeds. There really right. isn't a lot of research there. And those are like my favorite kinds of things to do. My best part about research is when you discover something, you get a result. And for that brief moment, you're the only person in the world who knows that. That to oh, me a- is like, you've just discovered something new, you know, and then you go out and share it with people, which is the other fantastic part. But for a brief moment, that knowledge is just mine. Um, oh, that's such a that's such a cool way to look at that. Yeah, uh, and and I think it's a it's a in in academia it's such a healthy way to look at it too because you know I I, I get down on it sometimes because I've been in it for a while now and and it, in different capacities both in the um, you know teaching research public outreach kind of stuff and and sometimes I feel like we 
like, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, but we kind of just go through the paces and it's, it's do the next thing, publish the next paper, write the next grant, you know, go for tenure, go for this, go for that. And, and at some point, I, I think for a lot of us, it's that, that joy of wonder and discovery that got us into science in the first place, that got us into uh, uh, research in the first place. And, and that's such a cool, like, uh, just, just way to think about it, that maybe we can keep being excited about the things we're doing, even after, you know, a while in the field. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the the fact that I look at things that way just stems from when I was a child, I loved reading about like explorers and stuff and like, you know, the 18 whatevers who would go out and discover a new species. And of course, they weren't actually new species because all the local people already knew about them, but they'd come back and they'd tell all their friends, look, I found this thing. It's called an armadillo. And, or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just really wanted to be one of those people who would go out and find new things that no one ever heard of. Um, which I think you can do with like physics or like chemistry. You can find new things no one's heard of. Biology is a bit more difficult. Sure. They don't really like physics. And well, chemistry is fine, but biology is yeah. better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hot take. That's fine. I like it. I, I'm, I, every I'm time with you. I'm on a podcast, I start a fight with someone. Um, That's okay. Apparently. That's why it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here to antagonize. Um, but yeah, so I ended up um, doing this research on on winged seeds, uh, on Samaras, and never expected that that was where I was going to end up with my master's project. But when I, the first meeting I had with who, the guy who ended up being my supervisor, I went and looked at his Google Scholar profile just so I could read like his last publication, see what he was up to. And there was... In, within like the last year before our first meeting, he had published on uh, theoretical physics, paleobiology, statistics, like other ecological concepts. And he just does everything. So wow. um, he just kind of threw me into the deep end with these seeds, which I enjoyed. But for almost the entire year I worked with him, he called the Samaras Samsaras because he had no idea what I was actually doing. He didn't know anything about these seeds. He just thought they were cool and that we should study them more. Um, okay, fair which enough. Which I think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that with me and just go, you know what, if you think something's cool, you should just go and study it. And, you know, no, it doesn't matter you're not an expert in that particular area, as long as you do the work in a, in a good, consistent, scientific way. Um, well, and that also, you know, I, I, I love, I, I really am enjoying the way you think about science because again, we special, we spend so many years specializing. All right. Right. At, at the PhD level, which, you know, you're in, you're in that process now. It's like you pour your whole life and all of your energy into this like one thing. And, and, you know, sometimes I, I think even as, as PhDs on the other side of the, the dissertation, it's it's really easy to kind of put blinders on. It's like I do this, and this is what I do, and this is my job, and that's it. To the to the detriment of all else, and and I think that that's really a good. And maybe some of it is cultural too, versus you know the the like we said the U.S. system of academia and all the tenure and all the stuff that we do here. And I know that that's that exists everywhere. I know that's not just, but uh, you know I work with a lot of people that um are are really great scientists but you know they're it's all about uh uh in some in some cases very basic science that it's like we study this one interaction and this one thing and this is what we do and they know everything about it and i think that's awesome but uh, i've always been i think maybe maybe like you are in some ways sort of a generalist in my approach to science like i want to know a little bit about everything yeah yeah, I, I mean, I do call myself an ecologist. I, I am an ecologist, but the specific like subset of ecology that I do, I'm still not settled on. Uh, you know, sure. I've done the bluted work I did was uh, nesting behavior and like climate change adjacent. The plant work was plant dispersal. And now I'm working on uh, fish behavior, which is completely different from the other two again. And uh, learning, especially, which I didn't do with the birds. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to stick with learning at the moment sure. i'm enjoying it uh That's good. love to get back to plant animal interactions at some point too um which i did yeah. get to do a bit of um 
but yeah, I'm I'm not settled on anything. And I think you hear a lot of people who you know are at like my career stage, early PhD, who feel like they have to settle on something, and I just don't think that's necessary. Um, I try to tell yeah. people like you know it's it's fine. I know it is many things about like many topics, but I'm not an expert in any of them. And and I think that's totally fine because you know our. Uh, life and careers are both short and long at the same time. Like it, it, it goes quickly, but we do have, I think, time to explore the things we like. And, and I think a, a good message too is that it's it's never too late to find something new that you love. No, absolutely. You know, at, at any point in your career. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I want to hear. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about the research you're doing now, mm-hmm. and then I kind of want to go after that back to. Um, some of your master's research yeah. and, and a couple of these papers you've published, but mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about Archerfish because that's, yes. I think, you know, what you're spending your time doing now. And I find them so fascinating. I know honestly, almost nothing about fish. I know that I can go catch a bass sometimes and that's about it. I almost know nothing about fish too. So we're, in, <laughs> you know, I know lots about Archerfish at this point, but most fish I'm like, I don't know what you are or what you do. Um, no. So, uh, as much as I enjoyed my master's, I did kind of miss working with animals. Um, and I saw an ad for a PhD project working with archerfish in my department in St. Andrews, advertised by the guy whose office door I sat next to during my master's. So I just, you know, went up, knocked on his door. I was like, hey, sure. you haven't met me yet, but I want to be your new PhD student. Um, and that worked out quite well. Uh, ended up getting the funding for the project. Um and it was all about, you know, determining whether these these fish, archer fish, can be used as a new model for um, learning studies. Uh, mm. A lot of learning studies use, you know, apes or uh, ravens, crows, you know, those kinds of birds. Fish really don't come up in it very often. You get people who do things with sticklebacks and with guppies. But archer fish have these really cool mechanisms that might have a lot of learning involved, a lot of like complicated neurology, despite their brains being the size of a grain of rice, um, that could provide a lot of uh, information for, you know, our own human evolution, uh, the evolution of learning in other animals. And even uh, I've heard it could potentially be used in robotics. And that's wow. just really cool. Um, so yeah, it's now been uh, two years that I've been working with these fish. So Get to go to the lab every day, and uh, the fish then spit at me because I'm too slow at feeding them. Uh, that's their whole gimmick. They um, they spit huh. jets of water. They can shoot up to six feet. Um, I've seen them do it. They hit the ceiling sometimes in the lab, and wow, yeah, it's it's impressive. Um, but they do. They like to aim at my face when I, when they think I'm being slow. Um, Feels rude, but okay. <laughs> yeah, they know I'm the one who feeds them. They recognize individual humans, so they wow. don't spit at other people really. But when I come in the lab, they kind of follow me in the round of the tanks. They're like, "Why are you feeding that tank first? Why are you walking over there? Okay, now she's coming over here." And then you know. They're kind of like all swim up. It's a bit like having like a lot of dogs, but they're confined sure. in a like a small space and filled with water. Um, but yeah, I've been studying um, basically how they or whether they can learn specifics within the spitting behavior from each other. So, you know, teaching them to spit at a specific target and then seeing if the other fish pick up on which target they have to spit at, things like that. Um Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And just general group dynamics, like if you know if there's more fish around, are they quicker at shooting or not? Because they're really aware of everything around them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're they're amazing. I absolutely love them. Well, and and to me, just the fact that they can recognize individual humans is is okay. kind of mind blowing, right? Like, more than they can recognize more than forty different human faces in the experiments that have been done. Um, Wow. And, you know, these were pictures of human faces. Sure. But then when they rotated the faces around to show them a different angle, the fish still knew which one image they'd been trained to shoot at. That's, that's, I'm processing that. That's incredible. Because yep. they're don't... absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, a lot of my, my psychom's been trying to persuade people that fish are a lot smarter than we might think. Um, 
you know, in their own ways. I'm not saying they're going to do like complex algebra or learn to ride a bike, but well, they're sure. perfectly adapted for the environment they're in. And that makes them pretty smart because we can do a lot of the things they can do. Um, yeah. They're better well, at some things than like pro athletes are. Uh, you know, they're dope, so they're amazing. Yep. Well, and, and I think that that actually paints such an important um, larger picture of the way that we view uh, um, it, life in general, animal life, other organism life. Because I think we, we're, you know, and I, I don't know that it's our fault. I think it's part of our, you know, evolutionary biology is that we're very focused on things that resemble us closely. Yes. Right. So uh, we're human centric, but then we go to mammals and we go to, and we, I think we, we tend to attribute quote unquote intelligence, whatever that really means, you know, ultimately to things that resemble us most closely. Absolutely. And then we start to think, oh, well, this bird's pretty smart, right? We can, it can do this and that. But then I think the farther we diverge from, you know, uh, our, our bilateral, bilateral symmetry and the weird things that we do is, you know, strange apes, uh, we tend to get farther and farther away and, and tend to think, oh, it's just a fish. Oh, it's just a plant. Oh, it's just whatever. When it may be that we just don't understand, right? We yes. don't understand their form of intelligence. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's exactly what, what I think. Um, you know, I talk about this with plants sometimes that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say that plants are, are like thinking feeling beings like most animals are but they do have their own forms of communication they do interact with their environment Mm -hmm. in an active sort of way they're not just like a passive organism that just hangs out out there um which i think actually leads us into our or or your master's research Mm -hmm. about seed dispersal and and reproduction in in these samara bearing plants so can you tell us about some of the research you did and a little more specifically yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I completely agree. I mean, I can't call what I researched plant behavior because I think a lot of people would get mad at me for implying that plants can like make these conscious decisions. Um, but it, it's kind of like a behavior. It's something they're adapted to do. Um, and it varies in how they do it based on circumstances. So, you know, just because it's not an active decision doesn't mean it's not a behavior. Um, sure. But yeah, so I researched um, the secondary dispersal of um, of uh, Samara-bearing plants. So you know, they're those little helicopter seeds mostly. Uh, mostly work with sycamores because they're what I could find most around St Andrews. Sure. Um, they do a bit of work with ash trees too, but you know, ash die back and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, there's it's been so much research done since like the 50s on how these seeds spin and the physics uh, of their like, you know, their flight and how they travel from the tree to the ground. But not much after that. And that hmm. seemed a bit odd to me because most of these seeds land within about 30 meters of the parent tree. Um, some of them definitely get further away. I think it's about 5% on average. but. Okay. In order to get further away, they need to be uplifted above the canopy. So that's dependent on lots of weather factors. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's only because the wind speed above the canopy is much higher than it is lower to the ground. So then, you know, these seeds can be dragged for miles. Uh, And lots of research has been done on, you know, trying to predict how far these seeds can go if they do get above the canopy and how that differs if there's more or less leaves on the trees. And that's cool. But then when they're on the ground, everyone just seem to have gone well that's it they're on the ground now time to go do something else um and that just seemed so strange because these plants they're really good colonizers of um environments that have been you know affected by some kind of disaster or barren environments uh volcanic islands things like that um but if those seeds if only five percent of those seeds ever get very far then you know it seems like they shouldn't be so good at what it is they're doing um, and these wings, they're an important part of their life cycle, but when they're on the ground, they don't just fall off. They're, you know, firmly attached to the seed itself and they remain right. for a really long time. So how does that then affect what happens to the seed when it's on the ground? So that's really where my curiosity came from. Um, and I ended up doing a whole bunch of experiments, uh, only one of which has been published. So I'll tell you about the others too. Um, looking at how the wings affected uh, predation 
um, how the wings affected flight once the seed was on the ground, um, how the wings affected whether or not the seed would um, survive in water and whether or not hmm. they would be able to germinate afterwards. Um, just trying to figure out a bit more about this secondary dispersal stage. Um, and the nice thing about plants is that the f- immediate, the primary source of dispersal, you know, whatever that may be, if it's flight, uh, animal dispersal, that's important. But the secondary stage doesn't have to be the stage that the seed's been adapted for. So, sure, right. um, you know, these, these winged seeds, the wings are really good for flying, but they also help with buoyancy. So they're really good at staying afloat on the water. And if they fall in a river, they can go for miles. But we don't really know for a lot of species how that affects whether or not the seed can then germinate. You know, maybe it'll be too much water and the seed dies, or maybe it's fantastic and all the seeds will grow really well. Right. Um, so really, that's, you know, and it also depends how far they can go and how long the wing remains intact. Um, so I spend about, yeah, the the year in which I did my master's, I spend a lot of time running around St. Andrews trying to find lots of seeds, drying them out in the greenhouse, and then putting them back outside uh but in specific hmm. specific locations and configurations um right so my uh my predation experiment i um cut out like a, a lot of these sycamore seeds put them in petri dishes in varying amounts of cut and uncut seeds just to see you know an uncut seed is quite hard to open you need to open the casing before you can get to the actual nutritious bits right so if you provide it already you know, like prepared, it's probably a lot nicer and will disappear a lot faster. And it did. Um, lots of mice and things, um, I think, um, picked up all of these seeds. But if there were more uncut seeds in the same Petri dish as the cut seeds, then it wasn't removed as quickly because these uncut seeds covered the cut seeds. Huh. And because these okay. seeds in nature they don't all fall off the tree at once they'll go in waves depending on the wind they get knocked off by the wind essentially right so the first batch will fall wing will start to degrade might expose the seed next batch will fall and cover the first one so it's almost like you know this this mechanism to protect the earlier fallen seeds might exist here that no one really thought about before um yeah, that's really fascinating, huh? And you know, and, and you're right because we, I, I've seen some some studies in in plant dispersal. We, um, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with mesquite trees. It's a it's an acacia, it's an acacia. Okay, so it has these big like kind of I don't know twisting seed pods, yep. um, and they're very common here where I live. They're um, uh, natively a South Texan and, and, and Mexican species. Uh, but they were kind of spread throughout the state and throughout the region with cattle drives and, you know, different things like that. So that's very, you know, human, human driven. Uh, but there was a grad student here doing a study on uh, coyotes mm-hmm. and how they dispersed it because the, these um, mesquite beans, these seeds are really high in protein. They're a very important secondary protein source for uh carnivores and and mm-hmm. uh, other mammals yeah. and e- even indigenous peoples used it they would grind it in the flour uh do a variety of things with it so uh you know i i've i've read a little bit about it but the actual I, again using the word strategies is is interesting but i think it's accurate right where yeah. those first that first flush of seeds drops you get some cover with the second one and um and i and i kind of read through your paper um earlier do you have thoughts on you know why maybe those and you kind of answered this already actually but why those winged structures um maybe helped protect the individual seeds not just as a cover but on an on an individual basis was it yeah i think it's just because um when i did this experiment i think it was uh like autumn i can't remember exactly but there was quite Mm -hmm. a lot of other food sources around that might have been more easily accessible um, and these seeds, you know, the, they get the best above canopy dispersal in spring and autumn because there's less sure. foliage. So then the wind speeds better or something. I don't understand meteorology or physics. <laughs> um, so that's when a lot of these seeds, uh, let go of the trees. Um, so I think these seeds, because they're just so tough to open, 
you know, I did find some of them, yeah, the animals, absolutely, they would eat through, eat the seed and leave the wing in the dish. Mm. So it they, it was happening, but it wasn't happening in as large amounts as the cut seeds. All of those were gone from the dishes that just had cut seeds in them. And within like maybe even hours after I put them out, I only visited oh. every 24 hours, but they were gone quickly. Um, so I think it's just the extra energy they have to put in to try to get the seed out. Um, yeah. Because if there's something else, you know, over there, there's an acorn that's a lot easier to access or whatever, then they'll go for that instead. And these seeds are small as well. They're they're packed full of protein, but they're not. It's not a large meal, even for a small gotcha. animal. Oh, and that makes sense. And there's maybe a you know, I just, and this just I'm not really an ecologist, but it seems like there's a um, time factor to it, right? As Absolutely, well, so the, yeah. the, these small prey animals, if they have to spend more time trying to crack yep. open a seed pod yes and i did run this experiment next to a public footpath so you know there were people with dogs i did hide the dishes they weren't right next to the path but it's not it's not the nicest place for people up hmm. uh, for people for mice um people for mice <laughs> to um you know spend a lot of time um especially you know it was next to a residential neighborhood so i'm sure there's uh well uh, not wild cats but cats wandering around too um yeah they just don't spend too much time in the open and i mean that's classic foraging theory but it i it does get applied to plants obviously because so many things eat seeds and you know fruits and things but no one thought about it in these winged seeds really that the right. wing might play this important role because the seed germinates when it's still attached to the wing the wing doesn't need to go anywhere so if yeah. you you know you've got this protective casing then you've got maybe more chance of surviving than, you know, some fleshy fruit that's fallen next to you. Yeah. It's, it's really, really interesting. And, and in, in terms of dispersal too, I think the, you know, we talk, um, we have lots of Oak yeah. uh, here in Texas where I live and, you know, they drop their seeds. They tend to drop their seeds right under the canopy. You know, yeah. it's a big, heavy seed and yeah. uh, there's lots of competition. So, you know, you get, uh, some selection based on competition, but then we have tons of rodents and yeah. uh, other animals. And um, it, it's funny to look at the cycle of oak tree germination based on squirrel populations and how they are always in flux. Yeah, Like you'll get a big acorn load and then, uh, you know, the squirrels hide seeds and forget where they are and all of that. And then the next year you get a huge uh, squirrel population. Yeah. And then they eat more seeds, so your oak tree seedling population goes down, and then they, they kind of follow each other. And it's just it's really interesting to yeah. think about. Yeah, there is actually an experiment, similar experiment done, I think, with pine seeds, which are also Samaras, uh, technically, mm -hmm. uh, in the 90s, where a guy, um, I think, doused them in like some radioactive substance and put them out <laughs> in the woods, and then went around with a Geiger counter and found like all these buried caches of these radioactive seeds that have been <laughs> hidden and he'd cover them again and then come back like the next year and so many of them had remained he collected huh. all of them that he could find there's definitely some like radioactive squirrels like wandering around in utah or wherever that was <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like utah in the 90s <laughs> yes. uh, that's very I really, I, when i first read that i went to my supervisor and i said there's no way that i'm gonna get permission to do something like this it's there <laughs> No, but it does sound fun. Yeah, I know. Uh, I just want to get your counter. Yeah. Well, we had uh, we had squirrels on campus. I went to Texas A&M, which is in, in kind of the southeastern Texas or south central Texas. And there was extra funding one, one semester, and they put little radio collars on all the squirrels. And you would see students with big antennas just walking around <laughs> campus trying to find squirrels. It was, it was hilarious and amazing. That's amazing. Um, so, uh, no, that's, that's really fascinating research. And I think that uh, – all of these things paint a bigger ecological picture yep. in, 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 and potentially too, in the ways that, you know, changing weather patterns and wind patterns and animal migrations changes our, our native populations and yep. the existing populations of plants. Yeah. And, and animals just, you know, the ecosystems in general, yep. in general. No, there's some, um, I didn't rely on this heavily, but, uh, you know, after the last ice age, um, uh, lot of these um, Samara bearing trees managed to get as far as they did just because the seeds were light and they'd get high in the air or they'd move across water. Um, and I did, once the seeds are on the ground, they usually don't go very far, even in gusts of wind up to like 
almost 50 miles an hour. I mm-hmm. stood on the beach with a bunch of undergrads and had them chase seeds when I like let them go and the wind <laughs> would come and the undergrads would chase the seeds. I think the f- one that went the furthest went maybe 50 meters, but most of them stayed stayed put. Um, okay. And, you know, even we, I left seeds out um, for like almost two weeks, barely moved. Hmm. Um, but if they're in the water, when I, I spend a few weeks just submerging these labeled seeds in a river uh, stream next to my department and then like pulling them out every day, taking a picture with this app that would tell you how much of the le- like leaf area had mm-hmm. decayed. Um, and so in moving water, after two weeks, um, the, w- the wing area had only decayed 40%. Oh, wow. Which isn't that much. Um, They don't float for very long. So after about three days, they'll stop floating. But if you're moving water, you could stay at the surface longer. Um, And seeds that I left out just on the ground or in tubs of like um, tubs of water in the lab, they barely decayed at all over those weeks. Um, I think maybe 20% for the ones that were just out on the ground and 30-ish percent for the other ones wow. in the tubs. Okay. Um, and then I did try some germination experiments where I then tried to, you know, see if if you cut the seed out and put it in water, fresh and salt water, how does that then affect um, how well the seed germinates? And then nothing germinated in any of my germination experiments. So I don't know. Um, probably has some kind of effect. Salt water can't be very good for plants, but I, I, no, whether it's the not. wing protects it's... them, possibly. That's There's a research project for whoever's listening. Go yeah, do that. No, I, that'd be really interesting to see. Uh, There's not been know, a lot of work done on that. Uh, my main resource for that chapter was a paper published in 1888 oh. in German. So I used okay. a translation that was available from 1907. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't science fun? It's yeah, so fun. Can, the mar- find, my markers find. kept asking me, are you sure there's nothing more recent than this? And it's like, no. No, just two I, German so, guys that cut up a bunch of plants and put them in water and saw what happened. That's all there is. Yeah. Um, Often that is the case. Just some old German people. I, can I? Can we pause just yes. a second? I think there's someone waiting for me outside. My <laughs> yes, office. I'm course. sorry. I'll be right back. I'm sorry. <laughs> of course. Well, hey there. Welcome to the mid-roll. It's been a few episodes since we've done one of these, so it's nice to have it back, right? Or do you hate it? I don't know. You let me know. That's my son screaming in the other room. I don't know if you can hear that on the mic, but it's very possible you can. So um, this mid-roll was supposed to contain a trailer for the Just the Zoo of His podcast, but I couldn't find it. Like, I have it somewhere. It exists, but I, I couldn't find the file. So I'm just going to tell you that you need to go listen to the Just the Zoo of Us podcast, okay? So it is hosted by a dear friend of mine, Ellen Weatherford, and her husband, Christian Weatherford, and they review animals, and they give them ratings out of 10. And it's hilarious, and it's wonderful, and it's family-friendly, and just an absolute delight. But one of the reasons I wanted to plug that show in this episode is that Doug Marr had an episode on Just the Zoo of Us as well, talking about Archerfish. So that was episode 92, if you want to go back and listen to it. And by if you want to, I mean go back and listen to it. It's great, and you'll love it. It's wonderful. Again, you've heard her so far today, and I don't see any reason why you shouldn't go do that. And while you're at it, go subscribe to Just the Zoo of Us and follow them on all the social medias at Just the Zoo of Us. They are probably one of the uh, uh, best Twitter followers that you'll ever follow, I promise. You know, aside from our show which you should definitely follow Pentapology all the places on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find me and the last of my self-respect over on TikTok as at the plant prof. Also, I as well got to be on just the zoo of us talking about plants, of course, but we talked about uh, some of the weird things plants do. We gave them ratings. We talked about some ecological interactions. That was episode 102 that just came out a couple of weeks ago, and it made me so happy. It was it made me so happy. I, again, Ellen is one of my favorite people. So go listen to Just the Zoo of Us. Go follow Plantropology all the places on the social medias. Uh, connect. Let me know what you think. And if you would like, go drop a rating and review for the show somewhere. Take a screenshot. Send me a picture. And I'll drop you a cool sticker pack in the mail. Yep. 
You'll get free stickers just for leaving a rating and review, hopefully five stars. I wear a size five-star rating um, on uh, either Apple Podcasts or CastBox or Podchaser or whatever. Those links are in the show notes. So, have you listened to me talk long enough? I think you probably have. Back to the show! So sorry. That's we right. uh, we just had some new locks installed. We had a break in uh, over oh, yeah. the, like pretty recently, so the, our our facilities guys were here putting in new locks. So <laughs> this guy was just like standing outside my office, staring at me. I was like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll go talk to him real quick. <laughs> it's a bit weird. Yeah, I know it happens. Well, again, I have my my office is like all windows, pretty much. Yeah, and so people can like always see me in here. It's it's weird. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, okay. So we were talking about, uh, we kind of finished up talking about seed dispersal where we were yeah. wrapping that up and, mm-hmm. uh, how, you know, how long these seeds will last in different environments. Yeah. So I, I do think that the idea of trying this in different types of water systems in, uh, salt water, fresh water, yeah. maybe even like marsh environments. I mean, pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. I think I chose the salt water cause I've I'm slightly obsessed with the Island of Surtsey. Um, okay. volcanic island that just popped up outside of uh, Iceland because it's it's such a cool thing that you know these scientists managed to go there and record every single creature and plant that arrived there and check what actually established because um, so many you know seeds would arrive and nothing would establish um, and it's just really cool that people could go and do that and there was a there were tree seeds that arrived and I think something like 50% of all seeds that arrived weren't adapted for water dispersal, but they still did, and some of them established. So I was hmm. like, well, you know, maybe old trees can do this. Let's find <laughs> out. No, it's really interesting. Yeah. And and probably to some extent, you know, there's, a, you know, a, plants are nothing if not adaptive yes. to environments. And, yes. you know, they they spread well. And, you know, I guess when that's what you do, that's what you do. It's yeah. pretty interesting. So I kind of want to move on uh, where we've got a few minutes left, but uh, I want to hear more about the uh, SciComm work that you do. Cause you use, I think uh, you're, you're one of the best science communicators I know. And, and I say that honestly, uh, you're very well-spoken, you communicate clearly. And, and I think you do such a good job of, of, you know, just in this conversation, but at, at a, in a larger scale on Twitter and everything else, you do such a good job of taking really interesting topics that, you know, us science nerds probably think are very interesting and packaging them for people that are like, why should I care about this fish? You know, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and you just were in a SciComm competition. Is that correct? Yes. I'm I'm getting like really hot. I'm a bit flustered. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Apparently, my younger brother's been telling people he thinks I could be like the next big Dutch um, science TV presenter. So, you know, um, we'll see about that. But um, yes, I was just uh, I participated in a competition called FameLab, which is uh, an international science communication competition. Sadly, it may be in its last year this year. So I'd love to encourage people to do it. um, But British Council is no longer going to be funding it, so I don't know if they'll keep doing it. But sure. it's essentially like the three-minute thesis competition where um, scientists have three minutes to explain any scientific concept of their choice. And I joined on a whim. Um, I saw someone I'd done a different competition with last December post on Twitter that she was signing up to do Fame Lab, And I just went, yeah, sounds fun. I'll do that. Um, and the first... Uh, the first round was the St. Andrews heat. And I talked about archerfish eyes because when they spit at insects above the water surface, they have to deal with the refraction of the water. So the mm-hmm. insect where they see it isn't actually where it is, but their eyes somehow compensate for this. We're not sure how, hmm. and it's just, it's incredible. I mean, I, I don't research their physiology myself, but it's just, it's amazing. Humans can't do that. Right. Like, you know, try to hit, I think I said something like, you know, try to hit, a fly with a super soaker while you're underwater. It's impossible. <laughs> You'd never yeah. get it. And these no. fish can do it and they can do it, you know, six feet away. Um, and it was a runner up. Um, the uh, My friend was the, the winner for the St. Andrews heats. And I thought that meant that I was done. And then found out two weeks before the Scottish final that actually I was meant to be participating in that. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> it, I, it was a bit unclear. And suddenly it was like, oh, I'm, I'm still in the running. Uh, guess I better write another talk. Um, 
And I talked about their artificial decision making because it's another really cool thing they do that humans could never do. Um, you know, when they shoot down these insects, the fly starts falling. And of course, there's lots of other fish around, lots of other artifish too. So the one that right. just spat at that fish, at that insect, wants to be the first one to get there. So these fish use something called a predictive sea start, which is actually a defense mechanism that fish use to like bend themselves into a C-shape to quickly get away from predators. And these archer fish have co-opted that and now use it to get really quickly to their prey. And within a millisecond, they decide, they calculate essentially where the prey is going to land and what speed they have to go at in order to get there. And if you wow. were to drop two pieces of food into an archer fish tank simultaneously, they would, same amount of time, decide which piece of food would land closer to them and just go straight for that one. That's incredible. You know, I that's something pro athletes do, like, I don't know, rugby or American football. They throw something and they're not even looking and then they manage to catch it. But most <laughs> humans can't do that. I can't no. do that. Oh, I these can't fish, do that. These fish are like, you know, six, and, six uh, inches long and they're doing all these amazing things. Um so I got through to the UK final, which at that point I was going like, this is getting a bit crazy. You know, I didn't really mean to get this far. And now there's like <laughs> cash prizes involved and like an international final, maybe. Um, and I was the only like animal scientist there. There was uh, a couple other biologists, but more, you know, like biomedicine, bio, mm -hmm. like what they call the red biologists. I'm a green sure. biologist. Um Okay. That's what they call yeah, it here. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm. Um, I do stuff with with animals and things and plants. Um, and then there was a bunch of physicists, and I was up against them, and they were all incredible people. And we film. We spent a whole day filming, uh, like quite professionally. We were all at home, you know, on Zoom. Yeah. But there were all these like really cool judges. who are like professional science communicators. Um. And we got all these like biscuits and things sent to our houses. They gave us free stuff. That's um, cool. Yeah, it was great. Um, didn't have to do any work for two days because I was busy with other things. <laughs> um, and then I had to keep my mouth shut for three weeks after we filmed it because I knew who won. Um, mm -hmm. And I was the runner up, the judges runner up, which I, I was shocked. Um, not as shocked as the girl who won. She was speechless. <laughs> um, and it was very well-deserved win. But, you know, the competition was, you know, having, you know, met these people and then this training with them and seeing their presentations, none of us knew which way it was going to go. Hmm. Um, and I talked about how Archerfish can recognize more than 40 different human faces. Um, and I felt a bit silly. I was doing, like, hand gestures and stuff. And then when the judge announced that I was the runner-up, he was doing the same hand gestures to, like, you know, like, kind of say, like, oh, well, the person who's winning, you know, <laughs> put everything in, like, a nice frame and did the same hand motions I did. Um, yeah, I had to keep my mouth shut. Um, I did tell my supervisors because, you know, they sure. put up with me and my flatmate because I <laughs> went downstairs afterwards and just kind of laid down on the kitchen floor because I was overwhelmed. Uh, and then I was really lucky because I got to watch the final on YouTube uh, with my family. Um, and my mom was visiting and it was fantastic. I hadn't told them. And I was also voted audience winner, which I felt a bit bad about because I have a significant number of Twitter followers. Sure. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm also very proud because, you know, clearly people actually like the work that I do. I don't think they would have voted for me if, if they didn't. Um, no, you should you should be proud. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh yeah. So I won two thousand pounds in total. Um and I'm, Wow, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> bought this really fancy new microphone, which which you can see. Um yeah. it's my first time using it, so thank you. That sounds great. Yeah. And yeah, I'm gonna use it to hopefully um well, I'm working on uh starting a, a brief YouTube series um on fish uh and smart fish, uh what we were talking about earlier, you know. Mm -hmm. these animals that are smart but just in ways that we don't usually think about them being smart so that's so cool though because like you know an international competition is is kind of and the fact that you were just like yeah okay i'll do it <laughs> whatever yeah no big deal yeah um no i wasn't i wasn't expecting to to end up in the uk final at all and especially not you know winning two of the two of the prizes from it um but it was it was such a good experience, and for anyone who's looking to get into science communication, 
I can definitely recommend competitions like that because even if you don't know what you're doing, it's just, it's good practice. It kind of gets your face out there. The public engagement team at the university now knows me because um, I'm constantly like, hey guys, I've done another thing. Um, <laughs> guess what? Yeah. Guess what? Put me in the newsletter again, please. Um, no, that's awesome. It's, yeah, though. it's just really fun. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that is, it, it's hard sometimes as scientists, as researchers, as academics to kind of get out of our shell a little yeah. bit. You know, again, it's, that's not something, and I think this is actually an important point for people to hear. That's not really something we're taught. No. They don't, they don't teach us how to do those things. We just have to either figure it out or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we've all had a, uh, a professor or a TA or something that, you know, brilliant scientist, but maybe struggles to communicate that science well in a way that people can really understand. And it's so important to learn that skill, especially early in your career. Absolutely. I mean, I think with the, you know, the performance aspect of SciComm, especially with like spoken or visual things. um, I was a theater kid in school. So, you know, I do have some experience with, you know, just sort of putting myself out there, even if I'm a bit afraid. But it's very different to then try to explain your science in a way that everyone can understand. Um, You know, you need to find the right level to talk at. But what I really like doing and um, what I learned from from some of the science communication training uh, that I got before I I did FameLab was, you know, use metaphors, use similes, relate the science concepts to everyday things. Um, And with my last FameLab talk, when I started my talk in these three minutes for, I think, the first 30 seconds, no one knew what I was going to talk about because Hmm. I talked about how humans can recognize different human faces and how many we can recognize. And then suddenly it brought up fish and everyone kind of went, oh, never thought about that before. And I think that really helped to keep people engaged if they're not entirely sure where you're going to go with something, people get interested, you know? They're like, well, what what are you going to do now? Which direction yeah. are you going to take this? Well, for sure. And then it, and then it uh, provides good context for understanding too, Absolutely, right? like, yeah. Yeah. You, and, you know, we have to be able to... Yeah. No, go and, ahead. No, no. We're always taught, like, you know, writing essays and stuff. You have to put everything in a broader context than a conclusion. But it's really important to put things for SciComm in a broader context, not just at the end, but from the very beginning, because otherwise people aren't going to pay attention. And if the broader context is is just, oh, climate change is important, for example, mm-hmm. that's something people hear all the time. So you want to make it just different enough that people, you know, don't fully know what's going on yet. That makes people want to find out. Yeah, that's awesome. That And that is such a great strategy because I think we have to relate, you know, there's all these concepts and, and, and I think you make an important point too, that we do get a little bit of um, information fatigue yeah. with like, oh yes, I've heard about climate change. Yes, it's been on the news and all this, but if you can relate it to something that's important to someone yep. that they understand that is relevant to their lives, it's so much easier in the long run to I say, oh no, I should care about this. Oh, yep. I... I do want to know more about this. It is important. Yeah. And what people care most about is probably themselves. So relating things. <laughs> and I'm, I don't mean this in a bad no, way. No, you're right. I don't you're mean right. this in a bad way. But relating things directly to someone's own person, rather than like a wider group context, but relating it to an individual really, really works well. Because yeah. people go, oh, hey, that's me. I do those things. Yeah. You know, yeah. And rather than saying, oh, well, you know, the city, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well, I'm in the city, but I can move, you know? Sure. No, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, no, that, that's, that's cool. And if you're out there listening and you don't, and you don't follow Duckmar, you definitely should because, uh, lots of fun, lots of cool fish stuff. And, and honestly, just, uh, I like as well that you do, and, and this is going to sound silly, but you are a real human being on the internet. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, I, it, I wanted to, I started the account to be just like, Oh, Hey, I'm a scientist. And then it's like, well, you know what? Yeah. I'm a scientist, but you know, here's a picture of my breakfast. Cause I have to eat too, you know, or whatever it is. 
Well, and again, it is important context that you care about these things and you are a normal human being. Uh, And, and so uh, the the rest of us kind of looking, it was like, oh, wow. So, you know, this person eats breakfast just like I do. And I know that sounds silly, but it's the truth. That's how it works. It really helps. Um, And I know there's, I've spoken to people who are hesitant to put so much of themselves out there on the internet. I was too, but now I spend almost all my time on Twitter. Don't tell my supervisors. I, I won't. They already know, to. but you know, just don't <laughs> remind them of it. Um, and I just could kind of put all my thoughts that I feel like I want to share out there. Um, I remember making fun of people who used to do that when I was like 12 or 13 and social media <laughs> was just beginning because it's all my brother's like silly friends who would tweet constantly at everything they do. I'm like, no, well, you know, I'm in the lab fish are acting like i'm late to feed them again let me just tell people even if i told people the same thing last week it's still happening or you know i tripped and my foot hurts sure want to complain about this here you go (laughs) and i'll go back to you know talking about fish at some other time no that's great that's that's really great because again it those the small things matter and and i think the day-to-day really matters yeah um I just looked at the the timer, and this is this has been such a fascinating conversation. I, I don't want to keep you all day, um, but the, so you know, having listened to a couple episodes, the the thing that I always like to throw at my guests at the end of the episode uh, is if you had a piece of advice, something that you wanted our listeners to take home with them, uh, take away with them. It can be about fish. It can be about school. It can just be about life in general. Whatever you want. What is like your best piece of advice? Uh, that you would give. So I was thinking about that yesterday uh, after I listened to a few episodes. Um, and I think it's got to be something that might come across as controversial to some very like hardball scientists. But okay. what's really drawn me to science is um, when I was younger, I was like obsessed with like fantasy novels and things. Still mm-hmm. am. And, you know, magic doesn't exist in the way that it does in those books in the real world. But I find that the natural world, the way it functions, is like magic. And if you just spend some time, you go out somewhere and just, you know, just put your hands on a tree or look at a bird or observe whatever creature is around you, you can detect those magical moments. And I think standing still and observing those makes you a better scientist, makes you a better person, just sort of puts you into a wider context within the world. Um, so I try to spend my time doing that. You know, just go find find a favorite tree. Have a favorite tree. Go and visit it. And observe the magic that flows through that tree as we go from season to season. And it's not real magic. It's science. And it's just, you know, progression of life. But if you look at it the right way, it can feel like magic. And I think that's an important thing to to hold on to. I love it. Yeah, hundred percent. I love it. Uh, wow! Thank you so much for talking with me. This has been so fascinating. I've really enjoyed just getting to know you a little bit better and and uh, getting to learn. Uh, you you've blown my mind a lot about fish, about archer fish, yes. and just a lot of other things. So accomplished. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the first time I've gotten to talk about my master's research because um, I never even got to present it at conferences or anything. And mm-hmm. I was in the animal behavior department, so it's not like people knew what I was up to or understood it. Um, so no, it's been really really nice, and now I get to get to share some of that uh, as well. And I love so, the podcast. So, oh well, I really appreciate that. That's. That's awesome. And it's always fun to hear that. I don't And this is an aside, but I've been doing this a couple of years now, almost two years. And still, every time someone tells me that they listen, I'm like, what? Why? Why would you do that? Don't do that. <laughs> because but, it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's this it's this whole like imposter syndrome thing that I still try to, you know, it's yeah. a science thing. It's, yeah. it's a people oh, yeah, thing. Yeah. It's not oh, yeah. science yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I, got, I got loads of that. Um, (laughs) so where all can we find you i'll put links in the show notes but uh where where do you want people to track you down um so i probably the easiest one right now is just twitter um because i'm kind of changing things around everywhere else so my twitter is at dj vedeman which is spelled w-e-d-u-w-e-n um i do have a youtube channel it is i'm not settled on the name yet so i'm not gonna 
tell you what it is. Okay. There will be Fair links enough. available on my Twitter once I figure it out. And I'm also okay. working on a new website, like a proper website. So that will also be on my Twitter. But at the moment, okay. I don't have any of those things ready yet. Uh, but yes, find me on Twitter. Every Friday, I post uh, 5 p.m. fish facts, where I tell you facts about fish at 5 p.m. And they're great. And, and they're great, they're yeah. Very sometimes, well named. Sometimes plants come up. Plants have come up there yeah. several times. So, you know, there might be plants in there, too. Um, and yeah, there'll be archer fish footage, just random life stuff. Um, lots of hats. I'm not wearing one lots right now. Vikram's wearing a hat. I am wearing a hat. Yeah. I had to put one on. But... <laughs> Yeah, my hair is ridiculous. Anyway, um, well, uh, Duckmar, thank you so much for being on. It yeah. was this was great, really great. No, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Cool, and uh, all of you cool plant people out there, thanks for listening. Uh, keep doing the thing. Keep being nice to each other, or start being nice to each other, depending. And uh, uh, we will talk to you soon, y'all. Here's another reminder to keep finding the magic in your life. Whether that is in the pursuit of academics and knowledge or in a pretty sunrise or the bloom on a flower or the way that an archer fish will take a fly out of the air and figure out where it's going to land. There can be magic in your life. And uh, uh, don't downplay that. And don't underestimate the importance of wonder. Thanks so much for listening. Y'all, as always, are the very best. And I, I do this for you. And I love you folks. And I'm so glad that you listen. Uh, thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for all the support and for letting me do this great show. If you're looking for a great education in plant and soil science, if you want to learn a little bit more about the things that I talk about and learn to do what I do, check it out. We have great online programs at the undergraduate and master's level. And um, so wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can come be a part of the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science. And if you're ever in Lubbock, Texas, please come say hi. And if you're ever taking a class at Tech, I would love for you to take my intro horticulture class. Y'all are great. You're wonderful. Uh, we probably won't have an episode next week, but after that, we've got two or three in a row. And um, I, I can't, I'm not going to spoil this prize, but they're great. Y'all are wonderful. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.